Join me in a word of prayer as we begin. God, we thank you for these examples of faith we see in this Hebrews 11 chapter. Lord, as we remember these examples of faith, Lord, we know that you continue to call us today to be people of faith, people who trust you. Help us to learn to trust you more today and as we, as we go. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think some of you know this about me and others of you don't, but there is a good chance that if you do not see me on a Sunday morning that I will be wearing my Dodgers baseball hat. I'm a big baseball fan, specifically an L.A. Dodgers fan. I know some of you Braves fans have feelings about that, so, so sorry about Freddie. But um, I, you know, I, I keep up to date on things that are happening with baseball, just kind of generally speaking. And one thing that happened this year in 2022 that I thought was really interesting was seeing who was inducted into the 2022 Baseball Hall of Fame class. Um, what was interesting about it is not so much who was inducted, but who was left off. There were some really notable names that were left off, and not only were they left off, but this was their 10th year of eligibility, and so they, are actually, they can no longer be voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. So the, for people that got in, it was headlined by like recent stars like David Ortiz from the Boston Red Sox. Um, but the two notable figures who did not get in this year were Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, right? So big deal names. You're talking about Roger Clemens, arguably one of the greatest right-handed pitchers of all time, and the stats back that up. Barry Bonds, again, right, one of the greatest hitters, offensive players of all time. Again, right, the stats back it up. But there's a reason they were left off. That reason having to be something that goes by the name of three letters, P-E-D, or Performance Enhancing Drugs. If you'll remember, Bonds and Clemens and a bunch of other players were part of this big scandal that kind of like broke baseball in a sense of all of these top elite athletes who were trying to get that extra edge so they were injecting their bodies full of these illegal substances that Major League Baseball had deemed were artificially enhancing their play. And so for this reason, Clemens and Bonds didn't make the Hall of Fame, right? Not because they weren't talented players. I'm, I'm just a fan, but I would think that with how good these guys were, they probably would have made the Hall of Fame if they would have never touched the performance-enhancing drugs. But it wasn't just about stats, right? It was about character, too, and so thus they were not allowed to be in the Hall of Fame, right? Another notable person who was barred from the Hall of Fame is Pete Rose, again, for character issues, right? He, he bet on baseball. Some of you younger folks, you can read up on that if you're interested in that. But he basically, he bet on baseball as a manager, and it kind of tainted the sport for a lot of folks. So I start with that because when I look at this Hebrews chapter 11 verse, I mean, this chapter and all the verses that follow in it, to me, it kind of reads like a hall of fame or a hall of faith, if you will, right? But there's a, I think there's a major difference between like a sports hall of fame and the list that we see here in Hebrews 11, um, right? You're talking about some of the most famous people in the Bible, right? We didn't even read the whole chapter, and we've got 
Noah, we've got Abraham, we've got Sarah, right? These great figures of faith. But what's interesting about them is they're in this list, this hall of faith, if you will, not because they were such amazing people. They're in this hall of faith because ultimately everything that was great about them was reflective of the person they put their trust in, right? Namely God. These weren't perfect people, right? You don't have to read, you can read a lot of Genesis that will show you how imperfect Noah and Abraham and Sarah and all these people were, right? They made mistakes. They weren't there because they, they, they lived these flawless lives. They're there because they knew who they needed to put their trust in. Their faith was a response to God's faithfulness and character, right? God is the one who actually shines through their life, through their lives and through their actions. And again, I think that's why it's no different for us today. We can have the kind of faith that we see in Hebrews 11 if we're willing to trust God in the same way that these men and women did. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to explore this idea of faith specifically as trust. I think sometimes we can equate faith with like belief, with like knowledge and like intellectual recognition, right? But if we look closely at what faith is, it's not quite that. There's some, some nuances in there that I want us to explore. And I really do think that trust is a better way of understanding what faith means. So, Hebrews 11.1, 1, we actually get a definition of faith, right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Another famous biblical definition of faith that we can see is Romans 8.24 and 25. The Apostle Paul writes this, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there's this link too, right, that we're starting to see between faith and hope and trust and waiting and patience that we're going to tease out a little bit more this morning. But what I hope you, you'll see, right, and, and Paul makes this clear, right, if, if you're hoping in only just what you see, well, you're kind of not really hoping, right? Because it's right there in front of you. You would actually maybe be silly to not trust what you see, perhaps, right? And so that's where this faith element comes in. There's this larger sense of trust. And so I knew we, had, we didn't have godly play this morning. We'd have some kids in. And so I wanted to do a visual illustration of this idea of faith and trust. And so we happen to have a student in our ministry whose name is actually Abram. I didn't even think about this until I asked him to help me. I asked him this morning, hey, Abram, do you trust me? Will you help me with an illustration? And he must trust me enough to say yes and to come up. So Abram, come, come on up. We're going we're gonna to do an illustration for folks. I'm going to move this over so people can see. All right, Abram, I've got some cups. I've got some water. This is real water. Watch, I'll, I'll take a drink. All right, so here's what I need you to do. Abram, I want you to put your hands out in front of you like this. I'm going to give you these cups, and I want you to hold them. 
And so part of this exercise is you need to, you need to trust me, right? You, you trust me? Yep. Okay. All right, so Abram, I'm going to put just a little bit of water in here. I'll put a little more in that one. All right, uh, I'm going to take this one, Abram. And so one of my roles here at the church is I am the youth pastor, or I do student ministry is what we call it. And so I have a rule for when we do games or activities in student ministry is I tell the kids, I'm not going to make you do something that I wouldn't do myself. So I, I feel like that's an important rule that's part of this building of trust, that if I'm going to tell you that we're going to do something together, that I am willing to participate in it with you. So it's not this like bait and switch thing, right, Abram? Okay, so Abram, going along these lines, if you trust me, I want you to put this cup on top of your head. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to spin in a circle. All right, Abram, open your eyes. Put the cup out in front of you. All right, you, do you trust me still? All right, Abram, if you trust me, I want you to pour the cup on your head and I'll do it with you. Ready? Thank you, Abram. All right, you can ask me how I did it later. Don't get distracted. <laughs> All right, so kind of a silly illustration, but I think, right, that helps us to see how faith is actually really about trust. Because if I had told Abram what we were going to do, Abram, I'm going to pour some water in a cup and I want you to pour it on your head and you're not going to get wet, Abram would rightly have said, no thanks, I don't want to, you know, get my church outfit dirty this morning, right? I don't want to get wet. But I didn't tell Abram that, I just asked Abram, Abram, do you trust me? Do you have faith in me? Right? And Abram and I have, have known each other for a while through, through youth ministry stuff here. And, you know, we've got a rapport. He, he said he trusts me, and he showed it, right? He followed directions. Thanks, thanks Abram, for, for helping that. And I didn't even think about the connection when I picked you this morning. Maybe the Lord named you Abram for just this purpose right here. You are now in Hebrews 11 as an example of faith. So I think sometimes, right, we confuse the concept of faith or belief as relating just to knowledge or certainty, right? We only want to have faith in the things that we are 100% sure about. But again, right, Paul challenges on the, us on that. Maybe that's not really faith. And we're, when we're thinking about trusting God, right, that can be a hard thing for us to get our minds around. We haven't seen God, right? We've seen evidence of how God is at work in the world, right? God has sent his son to earth, Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God, to be an example, to be God in the flesh, so that we have a really good picture of what God is like. But even with all of that, right, it can be hard sometimes to have faith, to trust. Faith is more than what our visible senses can sometimes detect, right? What our senses detect and what we can see and perceive, right? We'd call that knowledge. 
Um, I came across this really interesting definition of faith this week as I was studying. It's from Thomas Aquinas, and I thought it was really helpful thinking about faith and trust and how all this works together. (coughs) Excuse me. Aquinas says this, faith is the habit of the mind by which eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect to assent to the things which are not apparent. Let me say that again. Faith is the habit of the mind by which eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect to assent to things which are not apparent. Did you catch that? It's a habit of mind where we're going to entertain something that's more than what our intellect would maybe lead us to think otherwise, right? That's where this faith and trust element comes in. I think faith, simply put, right, is is trusting our lives to be ordered by God's plan for the world and God's plan for us and not what we think is right or our society tells us is right or our family, in some instances, may tell us is right, right? We've got to measure this up with the picture that we see in Scripture and the example that we've seen through human history, notably in the person of Jesus Christ, but in the whole counsel of the Bible as well about what God wants for the world that he loves and he created, right? In this Hebrews 11 chapter, we've got an example in Noah. Noah's a really good example of faith. Why? We forget this detail in Noah's story. But God asked Noah to do something crazy. He asked him to build this giant boat, right? Like when I'm saying giant, I'm not talking like celebrity, like yacht giant, right? Like massive, like multiple football fields. I don't know, right? There's, there's, isn't there that place in, um, in Kentucky that's got like the scale thing of, of, the, of, of Noah's Ark as part of their, their museum and stuff, right? So it, it's, all I'd say, it's huge. But here's the thing that we can forget in the story. At this point in the history of the earth, it's never, ever rained before. And so God tells Moses, build this ark because I'm going to send a flood, right? And it's not just this little boat, right? It's this big, giant endeavor that he had to do. He had to trust God. And not not only did he have to, like, trust God in his heart, right? Like, sometimes we go, oh, I trust God in my heart. He had to trust God in such a way that it changed the way he lived, right? Because he wasn't building this boat in a day or a weekend, or even a month, right? It took him a long, long time to build this boat. He had to have a lot of trust and faith in God. And we see this also in the Abraham story, right? We picked up some really specific parts of the Abraham story in chapter 15 of Genesis. But So I want to catch us up to speed before we dig into Genesis 15 just a little bit. So at this point, Abraham has already been promised by God. Right? This is not the first time Abraham is hearing the promise. He's actually left his homeland, and he's gone to this foreign place that God has promised not only for him, but for all of his descendants. And the interesting thing about that is Abraham is married at this time, but he and his wife Sarah, they don't have any kids. So, okay, what are you, what are you doing here, God? Right? You're telling us to go to this foreign place that we don't know anything about because there's a promise for that. But that promise is not even that we're going to get to that place 
that promise is actually attached to another promise in which God is going to send them a son, right, an heir, so that there could be more descendants. And God has all these promises, right? He says that the descendants will be like the sands of the earth, too numerous to count. Later on, God will say that I am going to bless the entire world through your family and your descendants, and you will be blessed so that you can then bless the rest of the world, because that's how God rolls. So that's all in the mix, right? And now we get into this really interesting dialogue between God and Abraham. So God says to Abraham, right, he tells him to fear not. And he tells them that there's a reward coming for you. What's interesting to note is this, this word that we use for reward, it's not like a reward in the sense of like a repayment. Does that make sense? I think sometimes that phrasing can get confusing. It's more the reward in the sense of like a recognition for something. So it's maybe not to be expected. Are we seeing the difference here? So Abraham isn't being rewarded because he's listening to God in this kind of like, you know, economic exchange sort of sense. Abraham is being rewarded for listening to God because that's who God is. That's the type of God that God is. The type of God who wants to bless and send promises to his people. Do we, do we make... Is that making sense? That's really important for us to keep in our minds as we're thinking about this passage. And so, right, the reward, it's out there again, which makes Abraham think, hmm, well, God, you promised us all this stuff, and here we are childless, right? He says, at this point, God, he essentially says, right, like, I'm going to have to leave my, my family fortune to a slave, right? Not one of my own. And so, there's this tension here, right? Because Abraham is trusting best he can. Maybe there's a little doubt in there too. And he's having to wait. And he's waited a long, long time. And he's going to wait even longer until this promise comes true. And so what does God do? God reassures him, right? He says, I'm a, I, I, am, I, am, I am God. I will keep my word. And I'm going to give you another promise, another vision, Abraham, right? And, and this is important. This vision is helping Abraham to understand what it is that God's doing. He gives him another metaphor, right, in this vision. He says, your people are going to be like the stars in the sky, too numerous to count. And then Abraham eventually continues to trust, right? He continues to walk forward in small steps of faith. And it says, right, it was counted to him as righteousness, right, as following in line with what God is like. Not because, right, that Abraham is this amazing person necessarily, but because Abraham knows how to trust God. And that's what's significant about Abram, right? Abraham, or Abram, I guess at this point, it is this response that he has to God. That's why he is a person of great faith, because he knows that he can trust God. Um, so when we, we moved here, uh, my wife and I, this kind of felt a little bit like an Abraham thing for us, 
We were living in Dallas at the time. My wife's family are all from the Dallas area and, and still living in the Dallas area. But we kind of sensed that God was, was moving. God was doing something. There were some events and things, and we were, we were ready to look for another church. And we stumbled upon this church. I didn't even know that Fairhope, Alabama was a place. I'd never, ever heard of it. And so I almost like dismissed this job listing, and I called a friend and asked him, hey, do you know about this church? He said, yeah, it's a great church. I think you, you should check it out. And so we looked into it. We went through the process, we applied, and here we are four and a half years later, and I feel like God's been faithful. Again, not because we're amazing people or something about or anything like that, but because God is amazing. And what he asked us to do was to trust him. Students, I'm thinking about you this week, right? You're either starting up school on Wednesday or the next week. There's a lot of trust in parents too, right? There's a lot of trust in God that goes into starting up a new school year, especially, right, if you're going to a different school. Maybe you've got some new activities you're involved with, right? Am I going to have friends? Are the friends that I had before, are they going to be the same? Am I going to fit in? Am I going to do better in school this year, right? There's a lot of trust that comes into that. And so we need to take these baby steps as we begin to trust God because we can't just say we trust God in our heart but not actually have that have an effect on the way that we live, right? I think sometimes a lack of trust in God can be utter discard for his ways, right, and create chaos in our lives and all of that. But I think a lot of times a lack of trust in God is a little bit more subtle. Um, there's, a, there's a theologian that I like to read. His name's Stanley Harawas. And he talks about this in terms of practical atheism. And here's what he means. He says, <coughs> excuse me, atheism isn't explicitly a denial of God. It's to live in a way that God doesn't matter. So to live our lives in a way that God actually doesn't have matter and meaning in a shape of, it doesn't matter to our lives. He says that's kind of what atheism actually might be, right? Again, it's more than this like belief system stuff, right? Yes, there is some intellectual challenges that some atheists want to pose, but really every atheist I've ever talked to, there's, there is at their core some kind of a trust thing that's really going on or a hope thing that's really going on. Or maybe there's some, some wrong they've experienced in the world, and that's what they're really wrestling with God about. Those, the, the knowledge, the, the certainty is secondary to this issue of trust. In another place, Howard Wass writes this. He asks this question that I think is really important for us to think about. He says, what sort of community would we have to be in order to be the sort of people who live by our convictions? What sort of community would we have to be in order to be the sort of people who live by our convictions, right? Who can trust God as best we know how and have that matter in the ways that we live, right? In our, in our psalm, right, it talks about not trusting in war horses, right? I don't know about you, but I don't have a problem with not trusting war horses. But if you want to maybe translate that into our modern-day language, right, maybe not trusting in our bank accounts, maybe not trusting in political parties, maybe donkeys and elephants rather than war horses, 
but trusting God and trusting God in the midst of everything, right? Even when we're in that season of waiting. So lastly, in, 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 in our gospel passage, Jesus does a couple of things, right? He talks about, I think this is really important and you can miss this, but in verse 32, the very first verse, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that a stunning verse? It pleasures God to give us his kingdom. That's the kind of God that we serve. And because it warms God's heart, and that's why he created the world, he's concerned when we put our trust in other things. The following verses, right, he kind of is taking on money a little bit, right? The very famous verse, 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For the purposes of this morning's verse, we could maybe translate that as, for where your treasure is, there might your trust be also, right? Ooh, that's, that's challenging, Jesus. Don't, don't, don't be messing with that with me. And then he ends with this really interesting parable, right? He talks about these servants who are waiting for their master to return home from this wedding banquet. But Jesus does this really, really interesting inversion of all the cultural expectations of the day, right? So the servants are being great servants, right? They're staying up into the late hours of the night. They're ready to greet their master as they should, but they're willing to do it, right? They're maybe, I don't know, maybe they're muttering under their breath a little bit as, as they're watching the, the clock tick past, but right, they're there. They're ready for action. They're ready to do what they're supposed to do. But listen to this in verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Again, that sounds really normal, right? Blessed would, are these servants who are serving the master in this way. But here's the twist that I think is really interesting. <coughs> Jesus says, truly I say to you, he will dress himself, the master, for service and have them recline at table and he will come and he will serve them. Do you see that thing that Jesus is doing there, right? The master becomes the servant, right? Kind of sounds like something else that Jesus has said, right? The son of man came not to be served, but to serve, right? And give his life as a ransom for many. So again, that puts this all into like focus, right? We see this in Jesus's life. This is why we can trust God because of that parable, right? We're not trusting this like abstract sense of power. We're trusting the God of the universe who puts on our human skin and flesh and becomes one of us and comes not to lord it over us, but to serve us and to transform us and to heal us. And by healing us and transforming us, he intends to transform the world. That's the kind of God that we're putting our trust in. And so the response then for us, right, is not to just give up, but it's to take that to heart, to be ready for action like these servants. Because we trust, we can stay alert. I want to leave us with two questions and a prayer as we close. The first question I want us to be thinking about is, what do I need to trust God for in my life right now? So maybe a specific place, an area of your life 
where you know that God is wanting you to trust him a little bit more? Right? That, that's a hard question to ask. I actually think this next question is harder because I've been thinking about it this week and it, it's harder because, again, right, this is that tension between the waiting on God and the putting things into action. Here's that second question. What do I need to stop trusting instead of God in my life? What do I need to stop trusting instead of God in my life? So think about that. Think on that. We can maybe put those questions in the, in the email this week to kind of jog your brain a little bit. And, I, and we'll include this prayer as well. Um, this is one of my favorite prayers in our prayer book. It's prayer 73, a prayer of self-dedication. And I think this really gets at what it means to trust in God. So we'll pray this as we close. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours and utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.